0: Jason Woods here, and this is the Little Big Med podcast where we're talking little patients but big medicine. Dr. Nader Shaikh is an associate professor in the General Academic Pediatrics Department of the Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh. He's also the lead author on a paper published in JAMA Pediatrics in June of 2018 titled Development and Validation of a Calculator for Estimating the Probability of Urinary Tract Infections in Young Febrile Children. Now, I don't know about any of you, but I wasn't taught much about how these calculators are derived, how to use them, and how to evaluate if the developers took the appropriate steps to make a useful, accurate calculator. Dr. Shake graciously agreed to come on the podcast and discuss all of these things. The calculator is available for free online. I will link to it in the show notes, but it's quite easy to just Google UTI calc. We get really into the weeds on statistics and methods presented in this paper, almost doing a journal club, but he does an incredible job of making these complex issues simple to understand, at least at the level that most of us need it. He and I jump right into some discussion, so I wanted to briefly review the basics of the article. The calculator was developed from data for patients presenting to the Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh ED between January 2007 and April of 2013, aged two months to two years with documented temperature of 38 degrees Celsius or above. They used a nested case control design, whereby patients with urinary tract infection, defined as a positive urine culture for a uropathogen, were identified. And then they evaluated controls from the same time period at roughly a two to one ratio. Once the models were derived, they then tested the accuracy of them in patients presenting to the same ED with the same inclusion criteria from July 2016 to December 2016. Now, I want to put out a couple of definitions before we jump into the discussion, just so we're all on the same page. When we talk about a clinical model in this discussion, we're talking about a model where only non-laboratory values are used, so basically just things that you can get off of history or physical. When we talk about a dipstick, we are referring to a colorimetric urine test, whether that's evaluated by a machine or by somebody's eye looking at a color palette. A urinalysis refers to a testing done with an automated cytometer, and an enhanced urinalysis is that UA plus a gram stain. I'm gonna have Dr. Shake introduce himself, and then we're gonna get right into it.
1: Sure. I'm uh, Nader Sheikh. I'm an associate professor at the Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh in the Division of General Academic Pediatrics. I do research on urinary tract infections and otitis media and sinusitis.
0: I'm wondering if you can give us an overview of what the study was and why you did it. Yeah. So uh,
1: we uh, did this study because we were interested in uh, predicting which kids we needed to uh, do a catheterization on. We sort of felt that the previous tools that we had were sort of limiting and that they didn't provide us with a precise probability estimate. We had to get up in the middle of the night, to be honest, to go to the emergency room if the probability of the of a UTI was high enough to meet with the families and talk to them about UTI research. So we really wanted to know exactly or approximately how likely a UTI was in any given child, given the information that was available at the time of the
0: visit. Wow. Um, That's dedication, getting up in the middle of the night to go talk to them. So then this was a a planned, uh, nested case control study, correct? Right. So I, I have a couple of questions just about specific things you did within the methods that I took a little bit to hopefully get my my brain around. Can you talk about how the total numbers for the patients you were planning to include in the training database versus the validation database were chosen?
1: Yeah, they were basically convenient samples. We just thought we should have a large training database and we requested five years of data from the Children's Hospital uh, database, electronic record database, and for the validation, we just did chart reviews when students were available of the patients presenting to the emergency room. In a different time period, when we had a few hundred, we decided that that was good enough.
0: That makes sense to me. You said in the article that most clinicians would require a minimum sensitivity of about 95%, which I think is pretty reasonable. But then you get from there to discussing probability cutoffs of having a UTI of either 2 or 5%. Can you talk me through how the sensitivity gets you to those numbers?
1: Right. So there's two ways of arriving at a cutoff. One is you ask a bunch of pediatricians or emergency room doctors or family doctors, what percent of, how many uh, tests do you want to do to pick up a UTI and what's, your, what's, your, what's the cutoff that you would like to use? So you could do it that way. You can ask people what cutoff they like. And we, uh, th- that has been done before by Dr. Roberts when he did his initial studies. He, he asked pediatrician what cutoff would be reasonable and the, the answer was somewhere between 1% and 10%. 1% was chosen by many people as, as being reasonable. If the probability of UTI was 1%, they said they would go ahead with testing. That was how the question was phrased, more or less. So that's one way of doing it, asking people what they like. The other way of doing it is what cutoff do you need to be at so you don't miss a lot of UTIs? I mean, I would like to be at a 10 or 20 or 30% cutoff, but it's just not possible because signs and symptoms of UTI are nonspecific. So you have to test a lot of kids to find one UTI. It's just how UTIs are. And there's no way around that. So the probability will be you have to have a low index of suspicion to pick up UTIs, and that means you have to have a low probability. So we sort of did it the other way around, where we said, what does the cutoff have to be so that we we miss no more than five percent of children with UTI? And that's so when we use that cutoff of 95 percent sensitivity, that gives you a point on the ROC curve, which is. At that sensitivity, to get that sensitivity, you need to use the cutoff of two percent.
0: That that makes more sense, and actually makes more sense than I thought it was going to when I tried to wrap my brain around it. <laughs> and this is
1: the the two percent is actually what we had pr- proposed before doing this exercise, like a uh, uh, in two thousand and three, I believe we wrote a paper in, in JAMA where we just picked two percent out of uh, just our clinical percent that we picked as a cutoff. Our judgment was that two percent was a reasonable number given given that UTIs occur in like 5 to 10% of children we felt that 2% was a reasonable clinical number okay and uh, this seemed to work out with this probability exercise that we did
0: Speaking of a couple, you just you referred to some previous work and within your study when you were deciding how to break down risk factors, you grouped patients that were female and uncircumcised male together as a single risk factor. Is that something other studies had done before?
1: No, they hadn't done that before. So the AAP prediction model, which is very similar, has a female and male calculator, so to speak. And we we didn't have any plans to combine these two things, but when we looked at this basically we're de- developing a formula to predict UTI. So there's there's a factor like race times a number, gender times a number, circumcision status times a number, and just it just so happened that the numbers for the two groups that you're mentioning were very similar. So we basically are factoring a number out of the thing to make the calculator easier to use. Uh, So it was a mathematical uh, thing that worked out and made the whole thing simpler because we didn't have to have separate uh, calculations for males and females. And it seems like the risks were similar. The calculator behaved in a similar way for uncircumcised males and females.
0: Gotcha. You you may have to become my, my new person I go ask to explain paper methods whenever I don't understand because <laughs> I actually get that. So following up on that, just within your discussion of nested case control study designs, you bring up a constant term, beta sub-zero, and talk about that you had to correct it with the prevalence of UTI in the final logistic regression. And I'm wondering if you can give us a high-level discussion of what that term is and, and why correcting based on prevalence was necessary.
1: Yeah, so that's a little complicated. So when you do a study to develop a prediction rule, you usually just study your whole population. So you study patients with the disease and patients without the disease, everybody with it. We would have to study 10,000 children. And out of those, there would be 500 UTIs if there was a prevalence of 5%. So we would have to review 10,000 charts. And then you will not need any corrections. Whatever numbers you get for your coefficients in the formula is, is valid because you're studying the whole population. We didn't want to review 10,000 charts because it's crazy. So we we reviewed the literature and we found that a nested case control design is, is gives you the same results and you don't have to review Uh, 95 negative charts and 95 no UTI patients and five to get five UTI patients. You can just review all the UTI charts and a sample of the no UTI charts. And that gives you the same odds ratios and everything that you need, except with the a qualification that if you want to use it a, a prediction rule, then you have to correct your formula. For example, we studied all the patients with UTI, which were about 500 patients, and we studied another thousand patients with no UTI. So we had two patients with no UTI for every patient with a UTI. So 30% of our population had UTIs. So our pretest probability, even if you know nothing, one third of patients have a UTI, so your, your prediction model, whatever it is, it's going to be around 30%, 40%. It's, uh, so it, it, that's not the case in real life, so you have to correct those estimates. So if you want to get the real probability, there's a mathematical way to do this, and uh, we use that correction to account for the fact that we had done a case, uh, nested case control study and not a po- study of the whole population.
0: Okay. And that, that actually makes a lot of sense to me. And I think my question coming from that then is if any of the listeners out there are going to uh, use the the tool, do they also need to in some way correct for what their local UTI prevalence is? Or if they are in a similar setting, can we assume that the, the correction is still valid and, and use the the calculator as is.
1: Unless they have some other tests they're going to do beforehand that increases the pretest probability a lot. I mean, if they have some kind of other tool that you, they're using before to enrich their population, if they're just going to the, to the ED and then seeing a patient and trying to guess if they have a UTI, then this, this, most places will have because we're dealing with little kids and you don't have a lot of information, this is gonna right. be around five to ten percent and that's not gonna that 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 range won't need correction. It's only if you do some other tests before you go in and that's available to you, then and you're not gonna use it on the other kids, then you might need to use another okay version of the of the coefficient or something like that.
0: Okay. Okay. I think my last two questions just on the methods before we jump into results are, you may tell me no and that you can't discuss it in this format, but can you tell us what overfitting is and how you evaluated it and why it's a problem if it's not considered?
1: Yeah. I mean, if you just develop a model uh, and for your data set, it usually tends to uh, Computer basically the, the factors that are chosen will fit really well for your model, but once you want to use it in the real world, it so you get a sensitivity of ninety five and a specificity of ninety five percent and it looks perfect. But when you want to apply it to some other database, it looks terrible. And this is this is a common thing in, in prediction models. So usually you have to you have to do some kind of validation to show that it this actually works in some other data set. So overfitting is when you sort of build a model that works perfectly in one system one population but doesn't really seem to work anywhere else. So we wanted to um, make sure that that was not the case for this model and that's why we had a separate extensive validation um, for the model rather than just internally validating the model which is which is uh, less ideal. We actually also validated the model in, uh, in another data set from the 90s Dr. Hoberman's uh, initial, um, seminal study on urinary tract infections where he looked at uh, the prevalence of UTI. We, we tested the calculator in that, in that population, and it worked pretty much the same way. We initially had that in the paper, but it was just too complicated to present, so we, we took it out. But it... The calculator seems to work in different data sets from different eras and time periods and places. So we feel that we do not have a model that's just for our BD and for one place or one time.
0: Why don't we move right then uh, into the results and, and what were they? And and how do you think the easiest way is to, to go about thinking what your results showed? So
1: uh, we basically found that five factors were needed to predict
0: UTIs. Now, I realized when I was editing this that we got so into this discussion that we never actually listed what those five factors were, so I'm going to talk about them right now. They were age less than 12 months, maximum temperature of greater than or equal to 39 degrees Celsius, black race as self-reported, a female or uncircumcised male category that was grouped together as one variable, as you'll hear us discuss, and then an potential other fever source. And they specifically mentioned acute otitis media, URI, gastroenteritis, pneumonia, meningitis, bronchiolitis, viral syndrome, kind of all the stuff that we would normally think about. So those were the five things that made it into the calculator from a clinical variable standpoint. And then they also evaluated the characteristics of the dipstick, the urinalysis, gram stain
1: these were very similar to what has been found before this is not new information it's everybody sort of knows these and uh, these factors the calculator makes it a little bit more quantitative which makes the prediction a little bit more precise than what we had before so it's a we're building on what the AAP had put together which was very useful as a starting point
0: well, as a, as a way to maybe illustrate this, since we're talking about it, and let's walk through that hypothetical cohort of 1,000 patients. Using the AAP algorithm, if you take the, the 1,000 patients, based on their algorithm, you are looking at missing UTIs in three patients out of 1,000 and needing to obtain 765 total urine samples, which gives a 11.4 urine samples per UTI detection number. Using the UTI calculator, there would be zero missed UTIs and only 684 urine samples obtained, which drops that urine samples per UTI detected to 9.8.
1: Right. So you have to do a few less catheterization. You miss a few less UTIs, and so you will have to do less casts per patient. Okay. But the but, but the thing that's common between them is you probably still need to do around 10 or 11 casts to get one patient with a UTI, Okay. which is sort of not fun, but that's where we are now with the tools we have.
0: And you ended up presenting data on five different potential models. One of them just had clinical variables that would be available. And the others had some laboratory variables that would that would be available. And I think my question, because all, all of the models that had laboratory variables in them had similar characteristics. So when a person goes to actually use this calculator, do they use it just by what data they have already decided that they would obtain or do they need to to look at this up front and make sure that they obtain the all of the laboratory variables that they're going to want.
1: So this is not an ideal paper to compare different uh tests really okay. Uh, but it seems like they're not too far apart. I mean the dipstick used to be the dipstick is a slightly less sensitive and specific than the full panel of information, including a gram stain. Right. And uh, so it's, you get less information, but it doesn't seem to affect things that much at the end because you sort of are combining all the information you have and it might add a little bit, but it doesn't add that much. So if most people don't have influence on what tests their hospital does, but, it seems like the extra tests are, are... So if you're asking whether it's cost effectiveness or not, I, I don't know. I can't answer that question using these data, but okay. it does give you more information. The enhanced model was 96% sensitive and 93% specific. And the dipstick was 95 and 92 So it's a little bit more information that those, those will make a difference in how many patients you miss and how many patients you over-treat. And, but the test requires requires a Gram stain, which is uh, it's uh, it's work for the lab. And right. So I'm not sure if it's worth it or not. But it's it's a better test uh, by a little bit.
0: I think the only other results table that that I wanted to specifically bring up, and I don't know if you have any additional comments on it, it's table four, and you look at the post-test probability of urinary tract infection based on the leukocyte esterase test result from none trace and then up through one, two, and three plus. And I think it was just interesting only because what it showed in general was that you have a, the greater that that gets, you have a higher post-test probability rather than having one place where it was clearly low and high.
1: Right. That's, that's why I put that table in there because a lot of Folks, myself included, just think of like a place where you have a cutoff in your head, okay, if it's more than two plus, I'm going to treat or if it's more than one plus, but it's sort, of, it's sort of a nice, very gradual gradation, like that it goes up uh, very predictably. And it's sort of nice that the... Uh, test is calibrated that well to be able to do that. And that's one of the advantages of having a calculator because it's hard to keep all these numbers in your head. But if, if you have a 2 plus and a negative nitride and a child who's uncircumcised, this thing will calculate it for you. Or you can Look at all these tables and figure it out. But there's more information in the tests that then uh, just meets the eye like right away and more information in the temperature and the age that sort of it's hard to do that all in your head.
0: Anything else that you want to leave the listeners with as far as conclusions from the paper, things that maybe other people have interpreted incorrectly or you want to make sure they focus on?
1: I think this is probably a work in progress. I mean, there hopefully we'll get to, I mean, the the thing I, I sort of think will be next is improvements in our diagnostic tests. So if we get better dipstick tests or better tests, bedside tests to diagnose UTI, there still is a, is a lot of testing we're doing to catch a very few number of children with UTI and the, the situation we have now the test we have now and the the practice we have now is not ideal we we have a test that's Given that the the disease is so rare, our test needs to be really, really our screening tests need to be really, really good, so that we don't treat a lot of children unnecessarily. And our tests are not there right now. That leukocyte esterase test is 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 okay, but it's not that great. You see, look at the number of children with unnecessary antibiotics in Table three. For for seventy patients with the UTI, you're treating another 40 to 70 patients unnecessarily so this is this is not an ideal test even though a lot of people think it's a really good test because the sensitivity and specificity are decent it's not so good given that UTIs are so rare you need a you need a better test in in children specifically because in adults it's when the patient is able to speak it's a whole different ball game
0: so just to wrap up because there was a ton of information in there the article itself is about the development of a risk calculator where you can input what information you have and get out a number that quantifies how likely a patient is to have a urinary tract infection based on the variables that you have available. Now you may or may not find this calculator useful for individual patients, but I do think that these risk calculators are something that are going to be increasingly integrated into our practice going forward. And if nothing else, they help give you an idea of what sorts of risk factors matter and give you a numerical value for exactly how much they matter. We didn't dig into every result that this paper has out there because that would have been a two-hour podcast, so I do encourage you to go read it. But the summary is that the five factors that we would have already thought of as being meaningful for risk of UTI remain the same. Age less than 12 months, maximum temperature greater than or equal to 39, black race, female or uncircumcised male, and any other likely source of fever and for most patients, the dipstick is nearly as good as sending for a full UA. Now this paper doesn't have the data where you can actually do a cost benefit analysis. And I don't know that we've got the data to say how useful that extra bit of information that a full year analysis provides. But many of you work at places that only have a dipstick available. I certainly do. And I have for a long time felt that when people got a positive dipstick that they then wanted to send for micro because they wanted an actual number of white blood cells on it, that that was unlikely to actually provide the information that the person internally thought it was providing. So how will I use this paper going forward? Well, it gives me a risk calculator and it also gives me a little bit of extra ammunition whenever I'm trying to convince people that for most of our patients, a year analysis is not necessary and a dipstick is totally fine. I've been your host, Dr. Jason Woods. Please keep the conversation going by finding me on Twitter at jwoodsmd, via email at littlepatientsbigmedicine at gmail.com, or at the Little Big Med website, www.littlebigmed.com. Don't forget to head on over to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. It really helps other people find the podcast.